This episode is powered by Poddex. Poddex are unique interview questions and episode starting prompts in the palm of your hand. So whether you're a new podcaster or existing broadcaster looking to grow your audience and have more meaningful conversations, you're going to want to check out Poddex. Now, if you want to get 10% off your order right now, you can go to poddex.com and type in coupon code, what's the code? Larry21. Yes, that's the code. Check out poddex.com. Take your podcast to the next level. Welcome to Connect the Conspiracy with your host, Larry Elise. Join him as he dives into some of the biggest conspiracies in history and attempts to separate fact from fiction. Welcome to Connect the Conspiracy, your home for all things conspiracies. Today we're diving into Korean Airlines Flight 007 and what really happened. But first, we'd like to thank our sponsor for sponsoring this episode. That's right. Today's sponsor is Pondex. Pondex are the hottest new tool for podcasters looking to have more meaningful conversations or to simply gamify their podcast. Shuffle up, ask a question, let the content roll. Get yours today at pondex.com. Use code Larry21 for 10% off your order. So without further ado, let's dive right into today's topic. Korean Airlines Flight 007 was a scheduled Korean Airlines flight from New York City to Seoul via Anchorage, Alaska. On September 1st, 1983, the South Korean airliner servicing the flight was shot down by a Soviet interceptor. The 747 airliner was en route from Anchorage to Seoul, but due to a navigational mistake made by the Cal crew, the airliner deviated from its original planned route and flew through Soviet-prohibited airspace around the time of a U.S. aerial reconnaissance mission. The aircraft flying its Korean Airlines Flight 007 was a Boeing 747-230B jet airliner with Boeing serial number 20559. The aircraft first flew on January 28, 1972 and was delivered on March 17, 1972 to German Airline Condor with the registration DABYH. It was sold to the ITEL Corporation in 1979 and leased to Korean Airlines with the registration HL7442. The aircraft flying as Korean Airlines Flight 007 departed Gate 15 of JFK International Airport in New York City on August 31, 1983 at 025 bound for Gitmo International Airport in Seoul, 35 minutes behind its scheduled departure of 23.50 on August 30th, August 30th slash August 31st. The flight was carrying 246 passengers and 23 crew members. After refueling at Anchorage International Airport in Anchorage, Alaska, the aircraft departed for Seoul at 1300 hours on August 31st, 1983. This leg of the journey was piloted by uh, apologies for saying this name's wrong again. Captain Chun Byung In and First Officer Son Dong Hui and Flight Engineer Kim E Dong. The aircrew had an unusually high ratio of crew to passengers, as six deadheading crew were on board. 
12 passengers occupied the upper deck first class, while in business class almost all the 24 seats were taken. In economy class, approximately 80 seats were empty. There were 22 children under the age of 12 years aboard. 130 passengers planned to connect to other destinations such as Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Taipei. U.S. Congressman Larry McDonald from Georgia, who was at the time was also the second president of the conservative John Birch Society, was on board. After taking off from Anchorage, the flight was instructed by air traffic control to turn to a heading of 220 degrees. Approximately 90 seconds later, ATC directed the flight to proceed direct Bethel when able. Upon arriving over Bethel, Alaska, Flight 007 entered the northernmost of five 50-mile-wide airways known as North Pacific Routes that bridge the Alaskan and Japanese coasts. 007's particular airway, R-20, passes just 17.5 miles from what was Soviet airspace off the coast of the Kamchatka Peninsula. The autopilot system of the 747 has four basic control modes, heading, VOR, ILS, and INS. The heading mode maintained a constant magnetic course selected by the pilot. The VOR mode maintained the plane on a specific course transmitted from a VOR. The localizer beacon selected by the pilot. The ILS mode caused the plane to track both vertical and lateral course beacons, which led to a specific runway selected by the pilot. The INS mode maintained the plane on lateral course lines between selected flight plan waypoints programmed by, into the INS computer. The INS navigation systems were properly programmed with the filed flight plan waypoints. The pilot can turn the autopilot mode selector switch to INS position the plane would then automatically track the programmed INS course line, provided the plane was headed in the proper direction and within 7.5 miles of that course line. If, however, the plane was more than 7.5 miles from the flight plan course line, when the top pilot turned the autopilot mode selector from heading to INS, the plane would continue to track the heading selected in heading mode, as long as the actual position of the plane was more than 7.5 miles from the programmed INS course line. The autopilot computer software commanded the INS mode to remain in the armed condition until the plane had moved to a position less than 7.5 miles from the desired course line. Once that happened, the INS mode would change from armed to capture, and the plane would track the flight plane course from then on. The heading mode of the autopilot would normally be engaged sometime after takeoff to comply with vectors from ATC, and then after receiving appropriate ATC clearance to guide the plane to intercept the desired INS course line. The Anchorage VOR beacon was not operational because of maintenance. The crew received a notice to airmen of this fact, which was not seen as a problem, as the captain could still check his position at the next Vortac beacon at Bethel, 346 miles away. The aircraft was required to maintain the assigned heading of 220 degrees until it could receive the signals from Bethel. Then, it could fly directly to Bethel, as instructed by ATC, by centering the 4-2 course deviation indicator, and then engaging the autopilot in the VOR mode. Then, when over the Bethel beacon, the flight could start using INS mode to follow the waypoints that make up Route Romeo 20 around the coast of the USSR to Seoul. The INS mode was necessary for this route, since after Bethel, the plane would be mostly out of range from four stations. At about 10 minutes after takeoff, flying on a heading of 245 degrees, flight 007 began to deviate to the right. 
of its assigned route to Bethel and continued to fly on this constant heading for the next five and a half hours. International Civil Aviation Organization simulation and analysis of the flight data recorder determined that this deviation was probably caused by the aircraft's autopilot system, which was operating, according to them, in the heading mode after the point that it should have been switched to the INS mode. According to the ICAO, the autopilot was not operating in the INS mode either because the crew did not switch the autopilot to the INS mode as they should have shortly after Cairn Mountain, where they did select the INS mode, but the computer did not transition from armed to capture condition because the aircraft had already deviated off track by more than 7.5 miles. Tolerance permitted by the inertial, inertial navigation computer. Whatever the reason, the autopilot remained in the heading mode and the problem was not detected by the crew. At 28 minutes after takeoff, civilian radar at Kenai Peninsula on the eastern shore of Cook Inlet and with radar coverage 175 miles west of Anchorage, tracked Flight 007 5.6 miles north of where it should have been. When KAL 007 did not reach Bethel at 50 minutes after takeoff, Military radar at King Salmon, Alaska, tracked Flight 007 at 12.6 nautical miles north of where it should have been. There is no evidence to indicate that civil air traffic controllers or military radar personnel at Elmendorf Air Force Base were aware of Flight 007's deviation in real time and therefore able to warn the aircraft. It had exceeded ex ex expected maximum deviation sixfold. Two nautical miles of air being the maximum ex expected to drift from the course if the initial, initial navigation system was activated. Flight 007's divergence prevented the aircraft from transmitting its position via a shorter range of VHF radio. It therefore requested Flight 015, also en route to Seoul, to relay reports to ATC on its behalf. Flight 007 requested Flight 015 to relay its position three times. At 2.43 p.m., Flight 007 directly transmitted a change of estimated time of arrival for its next waypoint, Neva, to the International Flight Service Station at Anchorage, but it did so over the longer-range high-frequency radio rather than VHF. HF transmissions are able to carry a longer distance than VHF, but are vulnerable to electromagnetic interference and static. VHF is clear with less interference and is preferred by flight crews. The inability to establish direct radio communications to be able to transmit their position directly did not alert the pilots of Flight 007 to their ever-increasing divergence and was not considered unusual by air traffic controllers. Halfway between Bethel and Navy, Flight 007 passed through the southern portion of the North American Aerospace Defense Command buffer zone. This zone is north of Romeo 20 and off-limits to civilian aircraft. Sometime after leaving American territorial waters, Flight 007 crossed the International Date Line, where the local date shifted from August 31, 1983 to September 1, 1983. Flight 007 continued its journey, ever increasing its deviation, 60 nautical miles off course at Waypoint Navy, 100 nautical miles off course at Waypoint and UKKS and 160 nautical miles off course at Waypoint Neva until it reached the Kamchatka Peninsula. 
1983, Cold War tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union had escalated to a level not seen since the Cuban Missile Crisis because of several factors. These included the U.S. Strategic Defense Initiative, its planned deployment of the Pershing II weapon system in Europe, and Fleet X-83-1, the largest naval exercise held to date in the North Pacific. The military hierarchy of the Soviet Union viewed these actions as bellicose and destabilizing. They were very deeply suspicious of U.S. President Ronald Reagan's intentions and openly fearful he was planning a preemptive nuclear strike against the Soviet Union. These fears culminated in RIND, the codename for a secret intelligence gathering program initiated by Russian leader Andropov to detect a potential nuclear sneak attack that he believed Reagan was plotting. Aircraft from the USS Midway and USS Enterprise repeatedly overflew Soviet military installations in the Kuril Islands during Fleet X-83, resulting in the dismissal or reprimanding of Soviet military officials who had been unable to shoot them down. On the Soviet side, Ryan was expanded. Lastly, there was a heightened alert around the Kamchatka Peninsula at the time Cal-007 was in the vicinity because of a Soviet missile test at the Kira Missile Test Range that was scheduled for the same day. A U.S. Air Force Boeing RC-135 reconnaissance aircraft flying in the area was monitoring the missile test off the peninsula. At 3.51 p.m., according to Soviet sources, Flight 007 entered the restricted airspace of the peninsula. The buffer zone extends 200 kilometers from the coast and is known as a flight information region. The 100-kilometer radius of the buffer zone nearest the Soviet territory had the additional designation of prohibited airspace. When Flight 007 was about 130 kilometers from the coast, four MiG-23 fighters were scrambled to intercept the Boeing 747. Significant command and control problems were experienced trying to vector the fast military jets onto the 747 before they ran out of fuel. In addition, the pursuit was made more difficult, according to Soviet Air Force Captain Alexander Zuev, who defected to the West in 1989 because 10 days before, Arctic gales had knocked out the key warning radar on the peninsula. Furthermore, he stated that local officials responsible for repairing the radar lied to Moscow, falsely reporting that they had successfully fixed the radar. Had this radar been operational, it would have enabled an intercept of the stray airliner roughly two hours earlier, with plenty of time for proper identification as a civilian aircraft. Instead, the unidentified jetliner crossed over to the peninsula back in the international airspace over the Sea of Akosk without being intercepted. In his explanation to 60 Minutes, Ziev stated, Some people lied to Moscow trying to save their asses. The commander of the Soviet Far East District Air Defense Forces, General Valery Kamansky, was adamant that Flight 007 was to be destroyed even over neutral waters, but only after positive identification showed it not to be a passenger plane. His subordinate, General Anatoly, I'm just going to call him Anatoly K, for his last name, commander of Sokol Air Base and later to become commander of the Russian Air Force, insisted that there was no need to make positive identification as the intruder had already flown over the peninsula. General K, to military district headquarters, said, quote, Simply destroy it, even if it's over neutral waters. Are the orders to destroy it over neutral waters? Oh well. 
Kaminsky, we must find out. Maybe it is some civilian craft or God knows who. Comica, uh, what civilian has flown over the coast? It came from the ocean without identification. I am giving the order to attack if it crosses the state border. Units of the Soviet Air Defense Forces have been tracking the South Korean aircraft for more than an hour while entered and left Soviet airspace. Now classify the aircraft as a military target when it re-entered the airspace over Sakhalin. After a protracted ground-controlled interception, the three Su-15 fighters and the MiG-23 managed to make visual contact with the Boeing, but due to the black of night, failed to make critical identification of the aircraft which Russian communications reveal. The pilot of the lead Su-15 fighter fired warning shots with, the, with its cannon. But recall later in 1991, quote, I fired four bursts, more than 200 rounds. For all the good it did, after all, I was loaded with armor-piercing shells, not incendiary shells. It's doubtful whether anyone could see them. At this point, Flight 007 contacted Tokyo Area Control Center requesting clearance to ascend to a higher level for reasons of fuel economy. The request was granted, so the Boeing started to climb, gradually slowing as it exchanged speed for altitude. The decrease in speed caused the pursuing fighter to overshoot the Boeing and was inter interpreted by the Soviet pilot as an evasive maneuver. The order to shoot Flight 007 down was given as it was about to leave Soviet airspace for the second time. At around 1826, under pressure pressure from General Kornikov and ground control is not to let the aircraft escape in the international airspace, the lead fighter was able to move back into a position where it could fire two K-8 air-to-air missiles at the plane. As a result of Cold War tensions, the search and rescue operations of the Soviet Union were not coordinated with those of the U.S., South Korea, and Japan. Consequently, no information was shared, and each side endeavored to harass or obtain evidence to implicate the other. The flight data recorders were the key piece of evidence sought by both governments, with the U.S. insisting that an independent observer from the ICAO be present on one of its search vessels in the event that they were found. International boundaries are not well defined on the open sea, leading to numerous confrontations between a large number of opposing naval ships that were assembled in the area. The Soviet did not acknowledge shooting down the aircraft until September 6, five days after the flight was shot down. Eight days after the shootdown, Marshal of the Soviet Union and Chief of General Staff Nikolai Ogrikov denied knowledge of where Flight 007 had gone down, saying, quote, We could not give the precise answer about the spot where it fell because we ourselves did not know the spot in the first place. Nine years later, the Russian Federation handed over transcripts of Soviet military communications that showed that at least two documented search and rescue missions were ordered within a half hour of the attack to the last Soviet verified location of the descending jumbo jet from Monorin Island. The first search was ordered from Samik Air Base in central Sakhalin at 1847, nine minutes after the Flight 007 had disappeared from Soviet radar screens and brought rescue helicopters and Soviet border troop boats to the area. The second search was ordered eight minutes later by Deputy Commander of the Far Eastern Military District, General Strogov, and involved civilian trawlers that were in the area around. Quote, the border guards, what ships do we now have near 
modern island. If they are civilians, send them there immediately. The island is just 4.5 million, sorry, 4.5 miles long and 3.5 miles wide. Located 24 miles due west of Sakhalin Island. Is it a conspiracy or not? Leave me some comments and messages on Twitter at CTC Podcast One or in the comments section below. If there's a topic you want to hear about, let me know and I'll prepare an episode about it. Without holding you longer, hit that like button, subscribe to the channel. Uh, subscribe to the podcast on all major podcast platforms and support the show by buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash ctc podcast thank you so much for watching and listening and we'll see you next time you have been watching connect the conspiracy with your host follow us on twitter at ctc podcast one and on facebook.com slash connect the conspiracy you can also find us on Instagram at Connect the Conspiracy. If you'd like, you can support the show by buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash ctcpodcast. Thank you for joining us.